Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. All right, welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with a social psychologist, NYU professor, Stern School of Business, uh, Jonathan Haidt. We're going to be talking to him about his um, his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, which was published uh, on December 1st, 2006. And so uh, Michel de Montaigne said that his books were the children of his mind, his his brain children. So Jonathan, welcome. Your brainchild is turning 13. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much, John. Thanks for having me back so, on. Thanks for, you're the only person who remembered his birthday. <laughs> and, um, well, you and know, it's I, I, my, yeah, it's funny because what? Oh, because my, uh, my, my first human child just had his bar mitzvah um, uh, in, uh, uh, on September 7th. Uh, so my family was, was celebrating that. And, uh, and yeah, we forgot entirely about, about, uh, about the happiness hypothesis. Yeah. Which is as celebrating on December 1st, you're the 13 turning 13 on. So, you know, as you know, I've, I've assigned your book to thousands of students. I've, I even, <laughs> I even have, you know, as I mentioned, I have one of my former students who's 27 now. She, uh, she got her master's degree yesterday and she absolutely adores, uh, the happiness hypothesis. She's. She says she's read it six times since she had my class when she was 17. She actually got a tattoo of the elephant and the rider on it, uh, which is the central metaphor. Maybe you could just sort of tell our listeners, for those of the, who haven't read the book, I mean, because this is the central metaphor of the book. I mean, so what is the, what is, what is it? Yeah. So, uh, so first, what, you know, what the happiness hypothesis is, let's, let's start with that. Um, it's a made-up title that the publishers made up um, because they didn't like my title. My my original title was 12 Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart from Ancient Cultures and Modern Psychology, because that's exactly what the book is. Yeah, uh, I It grew out of my teaching Psych 101 at the University of Virginia, and when I thought that I wasn't going to get tenure, I thought, well, if I don't get tenure, I don't want to go to a second or third rate school. I, I think maybe I'll just try to write a trade book based on things I've learned from teaching Psych 101. And uh, maybe I'll try to do this. Well, I did get tenure, just barely it turns out, but I did get tenure and uh, decided to write the book anyway. So I, I came up uh, with 
I, w I went and I read all the ancient wisdom literature I could and extracted the psychological principles, and uh, and and that became the the manuscript I submitted. And then I I got a contract and I was writing the book, and I kind of ran out of time and 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 I decided to change the title to Ten Great Truths: Insights into Mind and Heart, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that's a reference to an old Mel Brooks movie, um, History of the World Part Two. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, the idea was it was originally going to be. Uh, 10 chapters about psychological ideas. And the chapters weren't really going to be related to each other. They were just 10 different ideas. Um, you know, like how do we grow from adversity? And uh, chapter one is on how our minds are divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And so this is a roundabout way of answering your question. Um, the Every culture has, has observed that the mind, that we're, that we're sometimes torn and divided against ourselves. Um, and uh, there's a like there's a quote from Ovid, um, I see the right way and approve it. Alas, I follow the wrong. And so every society that leaves us uh, any psychological writing has reflected on that. And the metaphor uh, that suggests itself in many cultures is it's like a horse and rider. Um, you, you know, that's what Plato gives us in the Phaedrus. The mind is like a reason is the charioteer. And then there are these two horses, the passions. And, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. But what I was after... Um, was that actually the 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 unconscious or automatic part of the mind is a lot smarter than a horse and a lot bigger. Uh, and so I, I, at least I think I came up with the metaphor of having it be an elephant and a small rider on the back of an elephant. And I thought that better captures the the asymmetry. Uh, a horse and rider, you know, the, the rider always ends up dominating or at least can dominate and, and normally does dominate. I wanted an animal that's a lot larger and a lot smarter. Now, I might well have stolen the idea from Buddha because Buddha Buddhists do write about um, the, about how a, a sage will train his mind as an elephant tamer tames an elephant. So it's quite possible that I got the image from from Buddha. But at any rate, uh, that's that's what it's supposed to be. The the rider is the conscious um, uh, system one, uh, as D Dan Kahneman calls it, verbal. It's the stuff that goes on right in the center of our consciousness. And the elephant is the other 99% of our mental processes of which we are unaware except for their output. And so that's intuition and emotion. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating way. I mean, once you really grasp that idea, it, it makes a, a lot of things become clearer. Like, like, for instance, to give you one random example, I, I quit smoking. Um, I'm 45 now, I, I, but I quit smoking when I was in my late 20s. And I had smoked for, for you know, a long time, like about, I don't know, like 10, 15 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I quit smoking, I, <laughs> it was so funny. I could, I could see the, the elephant trying to trick me. And the elephant is not a horse. The elephant's very smart. So mm. I would suddenly, out of the blue, when it got to be like a, a couple of weeks, it took me a couple of times to before I, the quitting smoking stuck. And then it, it stuck, and then I, I haven't smoked since. But it, uh, I would suddenly get an idea in my head of a person, a friend that I hadn't hung out with in a long time, and I would remember their phone number perfectly, and I'd be like, hey, you know, I haven't hung out with him in a long time. I should really give him a call. We should, like, hang out. So I'd call up that person, and then 
uh, we'd be like, ah, it's so good to hear from you. And then we'd end up like going out for like for beers or something like that and catching up and stuff like that. And then sure enough, he, he'd say like, uh, Hey, I'm going to go out for a smoke. And you know, at this point I'm like, you know, three, three beers in and I'm like, Oh, I have a smoke. Why not? I have a smoke. Just one. Yeah. And then like the next morning I'd be like, you sneaky motherfucker. Like it was, it was my, my addiction was sort of like coming up with like sneaky little ways to put me in situations where yeah. I would be like, tough to, and so basically, what I had to, in order to, um, in order to sort of quit smoking, I had to not only basically stop in in a very kind of rational way. I also had to pay attention to why am I suddenly thinking of going and hanging out with this person mm-hmm. or watching this movie? Like it's it's clearly it's yeah. a movie where everybody's smoking and it's gonna like make me want to smoke. Right. Oh and wow! It's, uh, no, that's, but yeah, it, that, that, is, that is a great example. Wow! But it just it just shows you that the, the elephant is not uh, is not stupid at all. The, the elephant can can bring things to you. It's like who's that uh, that wonderful saint who went off into the middle of the desert to try and get away from temptation? And then there's that painting of him. He's in the middle of the desert, and all these like naked ladies are like sort of coming to him in his dreams. So like, Ooh, well, I'm not not up on my sense, but that sounds like a good one to read up on. It's uh, it's it's one of those kind of uh, superhero saints from the the early church days. But there's mm. these paintings of him where he thought, if I just get myself away from the city and go off and seclude myself, I will get away from all these horrible temptation. That it's just because oh, it's, it's in my environment. Yeah. But yeah. if you have these strong instinctive drives um sort of elephant stuff it'll it'll find a way of you know popping up <laughs> like one way yeah. or the other yep. but, oh yeah uh, just looking up it's saint anthony apparently the temptation of saint anthony in the desert yeah do you see the painting yeah. isn't it fantastic it's oh let's see there's one by salvador dolly here let's see yeah it's really fantastic when i'm when i'm sort of talking oh, about wow. how the subconscious works and how drives work i i always sort of Show them, show my students an image of. Oh, by the way, I I should apologize to you and the listeners. I'm just getting over a cold, and that's why my voice sounds like total shite. But, uh, but yes, oh, no, I, yeah. I didn't notice. But wow, yeah, I'm looking this up. The, the Temptation of Saint Anthony by Matthias Grunewald. Wow, it really is like something. Uh, well, it's like Hieronymus Bosch. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's, it's fantastic. But it, wow. it's the the power of of these sort of you can you can suppress. Uh, these things, but if you're suppressing something, you know, it's like uh, Nicholas Christakis says in his new book, Blueprint, you know, if you're trying to suppress as a, as an intentional community, a cult, um, a, yeah. a, a society, if you're trying to suppress something as hardwired as a mother's love for her children, the way, you know, they, they tried to do in the kibbutz movement early on. And, yeah. and if you're trying to suppress something as, as hardwired as, as friendship, as uh, it will, it will rebound. It will come back in various ways because we do have these. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, like you, I'm, I'm an intuitionalist. I, I think that there's there are these these powerful. Pros- oh, sure. Well, that's what. That's, well, my my friend Dan Wegner who passed away about eight eight years ago or so at the University of Virginia and then at Harvard. Dan Wegner studied uh, studied exactly that process. That why when we try to repress something, it comes roaring back. The, the imp of the perverse. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love those stories. Yeah. I love those stories. So if you, I mean, if you were to, I know it's the worst question to ask, but I'm going to, I'm going there. Um, the, if you could rewrite this book mm-hmm. and who knows, maybe you will. I, I hope you do. There've been all these scandals in psychology and the social sciences where they've tried to replicate various studies and, you know, it yeah. didn't work. And there's been new kind of criticism of, of all sorts of the greatest hits of social psychology. And then, of course, we had, uh, you know, that wonderful book, Johann Hari's book, Lost Connections, mm-hmm. where he talks about uh, sort of his own struggle to come to terms with the fact that a lot of antidepressants have not lived up to promise. And I'm wondering if you could rewrite yeah. the book now, mm-hmm. are, are there things that you would take into account and say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to rewrite that paragraph or that, mm-hmm. that chapter. Yeah, that, that is a good question. It's not the worst question. I've been asked much worse. Um, that's actually a very good question that I, I really should think about and probably put some sort of like a, a note or something on the, on the webpage, happinesshypothesis.com. So I'm just looking through the table of contents and I think all 10 of the ancient truths are rock solid. Yes. So, no, no, no. I'm not talking about, th- yeah. th- those are absolutely rock yeah. solid. I'm talking about some of the illustrations, no, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's right. No, so I did, so I wrote the book in 2004, 2005 and um, social psychology was very much into, you know, cool counterintuitive demonstrations of processes that, you know, that really catch people's eyes. Uh, and so I did. I did include um, a number of examples of, say, priming studies. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the uh, a lot of studies that haven't replicated, especially are those uh, priming studies where you know it, you expose people to something like um, you know words related to the elderly, and then people walk more slowly afterwards. Uh, there were a lot of studies like that, and I did use uh, a number of those in a couple of the chapters. So those I should go back and revisit. Um, and then let's see. Wait, there was another one that you mentioned specifically. Oh, the, um, well, the the yeah, the antidepressants. I need to read more about. I know it's always been said that uh, oh, they're just placebos. I don't think that's true because oh, they work I, on I think that's, dog, I, they work I, I, on that, dogs. No, that's very that's definitely not true. Yeah, right. The question so is, is the question is is like uh, you know what what Johann Hari says in Lost Connections is that uh, it looks like a lot of them work for four months six months but they eventually stop working yes i've heard that from from a few a few therapists too so i think that's true um so yeah i there's we know a lot more now than we did uh, in 2004 about long-term use and at the time in 2004 2005 when i was writing the book um you know my, i think they really did seem like miracle cures for depression and i think while that might have been a little overstated i mean things are more complicated um, uh, but I think for people who've been struggling with depression for a long time and had tried many other things, um, SSRIs do seem to produce pretty rapid and reliable effects. And not for everybody, but for very large numbers. So um, if I were to write a second edition, I would definitely, now there's a lot more research, I would definitely look into that and I would probably add more nuance and, and warnings wherever appropriate. Okay. Because, I mean, you, you do say that there's sort of meditation, Pro- Prozac, and CBT. Right, mm-hmm. that those are the three ways that you can actually sort of address the the elephant, right? That you can actually change yeah. change your mind, right? And so yeah. I wonder if the because I mean, one of the things that um, that Harari says in that book, which completely fits with your, I, I think one of the if your book has a couple of kind of centers, right? And one of them, which students who ha- who read the book ten years ago. 
they always bring this up again and again, either because they think it, it was very powerful and life-changing for them, or they they totally disagree with it. And But they disagree with it in a really interesting, productive way. Like they've gone off and done graduate degrees, you know, trying to prove that you're wrong kind of thing. Is the Bob and Mary... <laughs> The hypothetical Bob and Mary story. Oh, yeah. Right? Happy. Which is just, yeah, which is just, you know, so you have this this white guy who is single and has a good, makes good money, and he lives in sunny California, and he lives, you know, goes to museums on the weekends. He has a very cultured kind of, uh, you know, I read the New Yorker kind of life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mary lives in snowy Buffalo, and she's she's in her sixties, and she's um, she's a little overweight, and she's black. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a lot of money, um, and she's got health problems and stuff like that. Um, but she's very happily married, and she's a devout Christian, and she's really uh, like a integral part of her church and her community. And you give these sort of these details, and then you mm-hmm. say, "Who would you put your money on?" to be more likely to be happy. And you say that actually Mary is more likely mm-hmm. to be happy. This, uh, you know, my wife's a sociologist and, you know, so I, I hang out with lots of sociologists and like, this was like kryptonite for a lot of like, <laughs> my, so they uh-huh. were, they, you know, reading the book, loving it, loving it, loving it. They got to that example and just mm-hmm. like, you know, like putting salt on a slug. Like they were just yeah. so, no, because this goes against you know everything. Like my, my friend Giovanni, he uh, he's he does sort of sociology of race and and stuff like that. And he said he specifically looks at how people, um, lower class people with less means and oppressed minorities have way more mental health problems and are you know they kill themselves more often and they have like, all this stuff. And so he. Yeah, he he was frustrated by that, yeah. but uh, huh. but what do you, I mean? But wait, wait. If he's frustrated for political reasons, meaning that we have to show African Americans as victims, what, what what was frustrating to he, him? It's it's frustrating that you could tell a story where the elderly African American woman is more likely to be happy than the than the single white guy yeah. who's making lots of money. That yeah. privilege yeah. that privilege sometimes is not a privilege. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. So he would want everything to line up. Yes, yeah. Uh, for and then it was, but yeah. I mean that what you say in that story completely, completely fits, um, you know, Harari's thesis in Lost Connections. And this is why Lost Connections, I think, has sort of been wildly successful. But it also sort of confuses people on the the left, right, libertarian, because you know it, it kind of is a, a curveball. Because he says that. Part of the major reason why we have so much depression and anxiety and the opioid crisis and all these things is that we don't have the kind of connections that Mary has. Most of us, okay, anymore. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah, so I don't. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I don't know this book. I'm just googling it right now. Lost connections. Well, yeah. So you said that the the book has he a knows number of he knows you. He's read you like crazy. He okay. cites you all over the place. In fact, I think he should have given you an honorable mention. You know, in the book. But he, yeah, he he's. Clearly, is very influenced by. Oh, by, it's a very recent stuff. book. Okay, good. No, I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna buy he this. Right on, now. He was on. Sa- he was on. He was on Sam Harris. Uh, it's a good okay, interview. Cool. And he yeah. was. He was so, also you know, on Joe Rogan. Yeah. Yeah. So, as you said, the the happiness hypothesis has a few centers, and the you know one of them, one of the sort of the cross the cross threads, the threads that link things together, is the rider and the elephant. But the other really big one, probably the biggest one, is relationships. Mm-hmm. That's the theme that 
I didn't know when I started it was going to link most of the chapters together. And um, so the, the, if, you're, if you're interested in happiness, um, then really most of the story is about your connections. And the, you know, the formula that I use to summarize it all at the end is that happiness comes not from getting what you want. It, it doesn't come even from within, although that's, that's better than thinking it comes from what you, getting what you want. But happiness comes from between. That is, it comes from getting the right kinds of relationships between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself. And in a sense, that's like what I used to construct Mary. Uh, was she had, you know, she had those connections, maybe not as much on work. I did give more, you know, work satisfaction to, to Bob, but uh, if you're tightly integrated into community, you're well, you're, you're married happily and you're active in a religious community. Those are really big uh, in terms of happiness. So yeah, that is sort of the main cross thread. Well, I know, I I know Mary. I mean, I go to, we go to, (laughs) we we're, we're members of a church that we go every Sunday and like, there's, there are old ladies. I I know Mary and it's absolutely true. They are, They are, I know so many of these sort of, you know, women in their 60s and 70s who have all sorts of health problems. They don't have a lot of money and they are so much happier than most people in my humanities department. Like, that's right. They're so much right. happier. They smile more. They experience more joy. They're more like the, the faces of the progressive people I work with are. Per, you know, this pinched all the time. Yeah. They look angry uh, a lot of the yeah, time. Especially in the last few years, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Not, not time for progressive. So Mary but, exists. Yeah. Well, that's right. And I think the the case, the contrast, also brings out something else, which is that um, we're not. I, th- I don't think most of us are striving for happiness. That is, um, and um, you know, I study evolutionary psychology. That's a big theme of the book too. And our genes. Uh, the, the genes we have in us are the genes that were conducive to survival. And if happiness was the most important thing for survival, that, well, then we would be constructed to be extremely happy. But happiness or contentment does not particularly uh, lead to survival, is certainly the ancestral environment. So I think when we're faced with a choice between prestige and happiness, uh, we generally go for the prestige. And this is why people will take a job that pays more but has a longer commute. Um, or a job that is held to be more prestigious. So, for example, I graduated from Yale in 1985, height of the bull market during the Reagan uh, presidency, and most of my classmates, or the biggest, the biggest recruiter, were the, the big investment banks. And I even interviewed for one of those jobs just because everybody else was. And thank God I didn't get it. Um, but you know, but that's was the, that the, the the sense we're all keeping track of what is prestigious. And if you know that this is what everyone thinks is really great and they'll respect you for it, but you won't be as happy, um, most people, at least, you know, sort of educated, upwardly mobile or upper middle class type people, I believe will generally go for the prestige, not the happiness. Now, maybe when you get older, that changes, but at least young people who are really struggling to make their mark on the world, um, to fight, to carve out a place, to earn respect, they'll go for prestige, not happiness. And that was really one of the points um, that the elephant is, in a sense, our evolutionary programming, at least that's a part of it, all of our unconscious motives um, that often don't make sense to us. They might not fit with our conscious values, but yet we we have these deep and conflicting desires that we often can't really change. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, just to circle back for a second to the the, re- the relationships issue, the the question that my, my son Tristan had, my 17-year-old son had, is he said, 
when you talk about attachment styles and you sort mm-hmm. of talk about these these three different attach there's sort of people that are very clingy to the point of being uh, perhaps kind of overwhelming and smothering and they kind of push people yep. away because they're just you know they're texting you like you know 15 times when you're just going out to get milk and bread you know like they're just really kind of up in your grill yep. as the the young people say um that there's that attachment style which is presented as being like a, an unhealthy attachment style which is mm-hmm. the result of uh, not getting enough uh, consistent and reliable love and support when you were young and then there's the other sort of maladaptive attachment style where you're you're distant and aloof because you know you you basically don't want it. you can't trust anybody and you have to kind of keep but in, inside you're crying and you're anxious and you're actually yeah. you know really yeah. so you're talking about the three attachment styles secure yeah. uh of resistant and avoidant exactly and um so Tristan's question was that he thought that that made a great deal of sense to him when he first read the book. Uh, but since sort of seeing a lot of his friends get into relationships and, and getting kind of a, you know, an N of more than zero, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Being able to, and being in relationships himself and seeing stuff that it seems to him that on the ground, actually there are, those attachment styles, they may seem sort of weird in theory, but in practice, they can work. So if you have two people that are both like really clingy, maybe maybe it looks kind of a little intense from the outside, but uh, but they're happy and it's uh, it's working for them. And maybe you have, if you have you know somebody who's distant, um, maybe it looks really dysfunctional from the outside, but maybe you know those two people, you know, people being as sort of different as they are. Maybe a, a bunch of attachment styles which seem dysfunctional can, in practice, work out just fine. So, what do you what well, do you think about that? Yeah. Well, um, the worst possible combination is someone who is uh, has you know the clingy, uh, you know the clingy um, um, pattern, and then the the aloof pattern. That would be a disaster. I think it's the case, but what I remember from reading about this long ago, I believe it's the case that everybody is better off married to a person who has a secure attachment style. Um, they, um, um, so even if you're, if you're the clingy type, um, are you better off married to another clingy type? I mean, if you're both kind of neurotic and making mountains out of molehills and, and easily hurt, are, are you better off with someone who's like you or with someone who has a normal, secure, a, a, a reasonable, don't fly off the handle kind of attachment style? Um, so there may be cases where two moderately clingy people are better off with each other. Uh, but I think overall, uh, so, you know, dating advice for, uh, for young people, it's hard enough to find a mate, but, um, you know, if you have, if, you, if it's somebody who's uh, alcoholic or depressive or has a, a uh, you know, has a, um, uh, an unstable attachment style, that's just, those are just not conducive to, to a, a long-term happy marriage. But don't you think you know? Just to sort of push back you on that. I mean, I've been you've I've been with my wife for twenty years now. We've been married for nine, almost nineteen years on November twenty fifth. Uh, how long have you and your wife been? You're Jane, right? Uh, seventeen. Yep, seventeen years. Seventeen years. So, I mean, I don't know about your marriage, but I know that in the the twenty years we've been together, uh, it's not as if the attachment style is is constant, right? Like there's there's been times where i i would say that when we when we met 
we both had uh, what you would call a healthy attachment style. But there's been times where, um, where you know, I went through a difficult period because, like, mm-hmm. I couldn't find a job, or uh, because my you know my brother committed suicide a number of years oh ago, and uh, you know, and, and and there's been times when she's gone through difficult times where she couldn't find a job or something bad where she was feeling depressed or you know whatever. Like, there's there's times um, in over a long term relationship where it seems to me like attachment style can be quite fluid right so yeah uh, well, you know, it's not yeah i mean it's, i would say it's not so much that the attachment style is fluid it's that if you have one you know the anxious or the avoidant styles um sometimes you especially if you are anxious and other, for other reasons it'll come out uh, and then there are other times when uh, so i would look for it's not so much that the person has changed is that the dynamics of the relationship or other other psychodynamics within the person's life will bring it out. So I know exactly what you're saying. I do recognize what you're saying. And marriages go through different uh, d- different phases for sure. Um, this might be actually a great time to bring in. So um, here's one of the big things I would change. I have been reading. So John Gottman um, is just brilliant. John Gottman uh, is he's the leading marriage in terms of in the research community. He's the leading. Uh, researcher on marriage therapy. He created the Love Lab at Seattle, brought in thousands of couples to live there for a few days and then videotapes them and asked them to talk about difficult things. Um, and, you know, and quite honestly, I started reading it because, you know, my marriage, uh, it was a wonderful marriage, but we have had periods, um, sometimes even of a few years that were, that were not as good. Oh, yeah, and for sure. The yeah. amazing discovery th- that I made is that if you actually work on it, you can make it really good. And, and John Gottman really helped. Um, and so uh, just you know, briefly, the, one of the secrets one is don't focus on, on communication. That's what so many experts say. It's all about communication. And Gottman says no, no. He says um, the basis is to strengthen the friendship and trust that are at the heart of any marriage. Uh, you have to really maintain the friendship, which is easily easy to lose as you both both get busy, and then also maintain your sense of admiration, fondness, and admiration. Those are really the secrets. Um, but there's, let me see, there's this amazing line he has. I'm just looking through my notes here. Uh, let me see if I can find the quote. What I'll just I'll just paraphrase it. What he says is, when you get married, you're basically choosing a set of unsolvable problems that will you will have for the rest of your life. <laughs> And so can you accept that? And as long as you can accept that you will never solve this problem, I mean, there are some small solvable problems, but you know, each marriage is a set of unresolvable problems. And you can choose, are we going to fight about this constantly until we die? Or yes, is one of us just accept are. that the other one, no, that the, this is just, you know, the Yiddish expression, mishagas, you know, that's, that's his mishagas. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that's, you know, what my, my parents and aunts and uncles always said. Each person has their own craziness. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you can accept that, uh, and and just um, you know, then things were a lot better. For reading him was for me like uh, it was like black belt level CBT. It was so it was such a because there's one point I think it was in one of his videos or one of his right I can't remember what it was but he makes this point which for me you know I I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that it was such a revelation but. Um, there was a particular kind of catastrophizing that I would do in in our relationship, and I think a lot of people do it. But I'm, I'm I'll leave a lot of people alone for a moment and talk about myself. <laughs> okay. But uh, I would do this thing where, you know, you get into a fight about a particular issue, and it's the thousandth time 
that you've fought about yeah. issue yeah. X. And you think, you know, I've been with this person for 12 years and we're still fighting about this thing. Clearly, and then you start catastrophizing. You're like, this is just always, you know, we haven't made any progress on this. Oh my God, yep. this, this sucks and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, maybe we're really not very well suited for each other and all this stuff. And what was amazing with him was to just say, whatever you were fighting about in your first six months, that's mm-hmm. probably what you're going to be fighting about 50 years in. Like, yep. that's probably... That's right. so. Rather than and, and he just he just reached inside my head and just like reframed the whole thing, and he said, "Your goal should not be to never fight about X again. Your mm-hmm. goal should be to fight about to reduce the frequency and the intensity. So mm-hmm. you want to rather than fighting about X once a week, you want to fight about X once every three months, and mm-hmm. rather than it being like a really big." like blow up that's like you know a whole weekend is ruined and you're kind of miserable and angry and you know sulking and mm. stuff like that turn it into something where it's like a 20 minute fight once every three right. months and yes, then, yes. And, like, and bring in repair attempts learn how to make repair attempts because you're going to have these fights but you can really make them shorter and less frequent if you if you can recognize what's happening and then make a little joke or do something to to bring in some levity so yeah, so Gottman, I think for both of us is is a really strong recommendation. I think we would both make to listeners. But what what is the reason why I said I was a little bit embarrassed about it is that when I shared this with with uh, I I don't know when it when I first had this insight, I think you know in, in the space of maybe four months, I shared it with you know uh, maybe five or six of my friends who've who've also been in like very successful marriages long term like 30 years 40 years and stuff like that mm-hmm. they including my father-in-law uh, Annalise's my wife's dad um when i when i said this to him he just looked at me like i was the biggest dumbass like in the world <laughs> and he's like um of course yeah and the thing is is he's not a condescending my father-in-law is not a condescending guy at all mm-hmm. uh so his condescension is only when like you, you don't richly know what, deserved. Yeah, like when you don't know what the Phillips screwdriver is. Like when it's something uh, you really, really should know. Like so mm-hmm. it was he's like, really? He goes, I isn't that sort of you know, I'm sorry, John, but isn't that sort of obvious? And yeah. I, I was like, yeah. uh well, I didn't figure it out until forty, yeah. forty, forty one. Uh, and he goes, no, Oh no, he goes, yeah. I knew that. He goes, I knew that. He goes, I think I heard that from my mom. Um you know, but he's you know he's old school. He's like Finnish guy. He's like everybody's been married for fifty, sixty years. They they made for life. They they pass on all this like kind of relationship wisdom about yeah. how you how you like make family relationships endure a lifetime. And they 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 have these like just basic things which somehow. I don't know. I, I just didn't get those memos at all. Like, yeah. Well, so, but that's, yeah, that's one of the points of, of the happiness hypothesis is we're surrounded by, by wisdom and the writer can read it and say, and nod and say, Oh yes. Oh, that's so true. But you don't really know it until the elephant knows it. And so actually this is really fun to go back through the books. I, I haven't thought about it that much in recent years. I've been so focused on the coddling and the political disaster of the United States, yeah. but I'm just looking, there's a quote here in chapter seven from Proust, 
uh, Proust says, uh, we do not receive wisdom. We must discover it for ourselves after a journey through the wilderness, which no one else can make for us, which no one can spare us. For our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. So in other words, the elephant has to learn from experience. You can't just lecture the elephant and say, okay, now my unconscious knows it. I'm all set. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I, I, that is one of the, the quotations in the book that when I first read it, I thought, you know, I, I like the sentiment here. It's very sort of Nietzschean. I, I like it and everything, but it, what, what bugs me about that, that particular insight, although I know it's true a lot of the time, I feel like the whole project of civilization and everything that, you know, a, a lot of what has made us great as a species, especially in this particular run, um, is that we can learn from, you know, we, we can learn from previous generations and we build on it and we build on it. And that's how we can like get to the moon and we'll get to Mars and we can build hydroelectric dams and we can do all these amazing things. And I feel like we shouldn't have to run into a brick wall all the time in order to figure out that that's a bad idea. Like it seems okay, like let's go wait okay let's go with that. Let's go with that. Uh, in terms of technology absolutely what you say is absolutely what happens with technology. Uh, but in terms of in terms of psychological wisdom I'm stunned at how quickly we can lose we can lose insights. Um, in fact, one thing I was kind of hoping to do with you today is um, is uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Marcus Aurelius because as I've been uh, as I when I wrote the Coddling the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff, um, it, it was kind of you know we, we, the book is organized around these three great untruths, these three really terrible ideas that a lot of young people now believe, and. While I was writing the book, I was also reading Marcus Aurelius myself because I was kind of anxious, especially the summer of 2017, the first summer of the Trump administration when nobody knew whether we were headed for nuclear war with North Korea. Uh, nobody knew whether the whole country was going to melt down with neo-Nazis on one side and wokesters on the other. I mean, it was a, it was that first year of the Trump administration was just really frightening. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I live in New York City, and there was talk about whether uh, you know, Kim Jong-un's missiles could reach New York City, and I, I decided I should at least be able to feed my family for a month. You know, there could be a near miss in which we lose electricity for several months. Um, anyway, I was kind of anxious that summer, but suffice it to say. And here I was reading Marcus Aurelius for my own benefit, and it turns out um, Marcus basically um, offers exact advice that's contrary to the three great untruths of the coddling. So if you don't mind, if I could just like read a quote or two from uh, a quote for each of the untruths. Yeah. Um, well, can you just say what very quickly what the three untruths are? Sure. Yeah. So, so the coddling the American mind is the analysis of what is going wrong with Gen Z, uh, on college campuses and now in high schools, um, very high rates of depression and anxiety. Um, uh, a lot of, of thought patterns that, that really make them disempowered, weak, anxious. And so the first great untruth is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Uh, kids are told they should stay away from stress. They should stay away from things, words and books and ideas that might be upsetting, uh, when in fact the opposite is true. They should actually seek them out because that's the way to get stronger. So here is a representative quote from Marcus Aurelius. Um, uh, just as nature takes every obstacle, every impediment, and works around it, turns it to its purposes, incorporates it into itself, so too a rational being can take can turn each setback into raw material 
and use it to achieve its goals. Uh, another one, our inward power when it obeys nature reacts to events by accommodating itself to what it faces. It needs no specific material. It pursues its own aims as circumstances allow. It turns obstacles into fuel as a fire overwhelms uh, what would have quenched a lamp. What's thrown on top of the conflagration is absorbed and makes it burn still higher. So this is a vision of, of, young, of youth, of young people, uh, in which we actually grow from setbacks, from stressors, from challenges. Uh, so anyway, the point is, um, Marcus Aurelius, uh, and I've got similar quotes from China, um, everybody recognized that we're anti-fragile. We're not fragile. And if we treat kids as fragile, they actually get more depressed and anxious. Great on truth number two. Um, always trust your feelings. Uh, well, <laughs> Search your feelings, Luke. You know it to yeah. be true. Yeah, that, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so here's here's Marcus Aurelius. Um, you don't have to turn this into something. It doesn't have to upset you. Things can't shape our decisions by themselves. And so it's very much the stoic view that we don't react to the world as it is. We react to it through the filters that we choose to impose on it. So here's another one. Today I escaped from anxiety, or no, I discarded it because it was within me, in my own perceptions, not outside. It's just so much more empowering to read the ancients than it is to read modern psychotherapy, or rather I should say, I don't want to blame the whole psychotherapy community. I, I want to blame the, the branch of psychotherapy that, that treats kids as fragile and, and acts that we need to protect them from bad words and uh, images of violence and, and, and things that we think will upset them. Mm -hmm. And then the third great untruth, the untruth of us versus them, is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. And this is our basic tribalism that figures in, in the happiness hypothesis and in the righteous mind. It, we're just so good at, at, at dividing the world into good versus evil, good groups versus bad groups, and hating people because of their group membership. That comes easily to us. Uh, and I think we're encouraging a lot of that in, in a lot of the way we're not so much the way we're raising kids in our families, but some of the some of the elements of social justice training in some schools um, is deep into dividing people by race and then saying they're good races and bad races. Yeah. And, and so it's amazing how how quickly that has changed, because I was I was a Pentecostal when I was a teenager. And I remember there were some friends that I had because one of my friends that I'd grown up with had come out had come out of the closet and he was you know, openly gay and stuff like that. And there were some Pentecostal friends I had that they just said very clearly, um, don't, don't bring him around. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and they did, they don't bring him over. And they were like, that. they just like, I will not, uh, break bread, you know, kind of with that yeah. person. Right. And that was, you know, that was in the eighties. The and, um, and I remember having like some fights about that. And then that kind of just died out in the 90s. And very quickly, things sort of changed. Mm -hmm. And the, the 90s was like this sort of golden era in, in many ways, like where there was a, a lot of kind of tolerance where you sort of oh, yeah. live and let li live. And, uh, and you kind of like people could hang with each other and it's like, it's okay. And then very recently, just yep. in my 40s, yep. suddenly... It it has come back for the first time since my teens. I have friends, uh, all of them on the left, like progressive, like academic, you know, people I work with, people I like, friend, who like have said very clearly, "I'm not coming to your party if that conservative person is going to be mm -hmm. there. I'm not yeah. coming to your." I'm and like sort of 
defriending people and creating these like sort of uh, these sort of uh, purity laws and purity kind of like and saying I'm not going to I'm not going to be a part of that panel if mm. if she's going to be on the panel or he's going to be there which is yep. something that I have not seen well first of all I've never seen it on the left because I grew up in a working class neighborhood with old school like Saul Alinsky you know organizers and Marxists and they were all about you you get as many people on your team as possible so that yeah. you can fuck shit up and like you know get people <laughs> get people elected yeah. you know shut yeah. down the plant so you you build bridges you do I mean you've read rules for radicals Saul Alinsky is like yeah. he says you know the first thing about an organizer you never walk into a synagogue eating a ham sandwich you figure out uh, <laughs> you figure out how to build bridges with people and you Ooh, and good. you 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 try and like uh get as many people on your team as possible so that you have power right whereas yeah. now the uh the sort of the the progressive left a lot of people i know they they are the ones who for the for the second time in my life they are doing what pentecostal christians did in my mm-hmm. teens they're creating these purity i'm defiled right. by your presence at, your yeah. presence at my table defiles my house no that that's right exactly no i have been seeing that too and i've i've just been developing sort of a way of thinking about this let me just try this out i haven't said this on any interview so let me just see if i if this makes sense <clears throat> um you know, on on campus, there's so much emphasis now on race, gender. Uh, um, you know, judging people based on their categories, and 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 um, and the way that I think about it is this: when when I was born in 1963, um, Jim Crow was still still the law of the land. In, in the South, it was legal to discriminate against people based on race. Sodomy was illegal. I, I don't know if it was all states, but certainly homosexuality was a was a crime. You could be put in jail for it. Um, and my entire life. Um, up up until 2015, my entire life was moving away from that at rocket speed. Uh, the fact that um, uh, the fact that uh, the Voting Rights Act was passed a, a few a few years later, uh, the fact that we um, the fact that then the the women's movement, uh, the fact that it not just was homosexuality uh, legalized, but it became normalized, it was perfectly that's perfectly okay. It's just not a big deal. Um, gay marriage was even made legal in in, in all across the land. Uh, and and became the law of land by 2015. So, my entire life was incredibly rapid progress towards equality, uh, uh, towards dropping of stigma. And th- there's a real wisdom to the late 20th century that I would summarize like this: You know that thing that we always used to do from time immemorial, where we judge people based on their category and we hate them because of the category. How about if we do less of that? So that's that's my summary of what tw- what morality was for the, in the late 20th century, up until about 2015, and then it all turned around. Um, and now there's much more emphasis on on putting people into groups and judging the groups morally. Um, uh, and, and so obviously on the right, you've got like far right crazy like actual Nazis doing it as you know white supremacy. But there's this weird thing called the Great Awakening that some scholars have begun studying, which started around 2014 and into 2015, in which suddenly white people on the left really turned against white people. That is, whiteness became this terrible thing. Now, black people didn't fall for it as much, but white people on the left became very anti-white, beginning around 2014, 2015. So that's part of what's convulsing the left right now, is you've got one small branch of the left 
um, in the Hidden Tribes study, this wonderful study done by Moore and Common, it's, they're called the Progressive Activists. Uh, they're the only group that rates their own race, so white people on the left, um, like white people less than they like other races. Every other group, um, every other group likes, you know, they like black people, but they like, you know, if so, if they're like white people on the right, um, they, they like black people more than the far left likes white people. Um, but they like their own race more than other races. That's what almost all people do. Um, except for woke people on the left who, uh, white woke people really dislike white people. So it's this weird thing going on, which is a reversal of the old dream, which is let's get past group identity. Let's treat people as individuals. And, and I think people have to start standing up for that again. Um, there was a lot of wisdom that we achieved in the late 20th century, overcoming um, all kinds of horrors and injustices. And for us to just throw it out the window now, just in the last two or three years, four years, we've been throwing it out the window, at least in, in the academy. So when you said that you think we build on the wisdom and it's cumulative, I think that's true in technology, but I don't think that's necessarily true in morality. I think we can burn it all up very quickly and lose touch with the past. Yeah. Well, I, what I'm amazed about with that whole kind of categorization is that even people who claim to be, and I'm willing to take their claims at face value, but even people who claim to be centrist and who are fighting against identity politics, I, again and again, when I hear them interviewing you on TV or on the radio or on podcasts, they immediately ask you, like, so, so, dude, are you like a conservative or a liberal? Like, where would you place yourself on the spectrum? And they don't realize that just by doing that, they're perpetuating this issue. Like, why is that even interesting information? Like, why well, does that, think, why yeah. does that, I mean, I mean, I understand sometimes it can lead to an interesting conversation, but it just seems that um, this, the logic of that kind of toxic identity politics is so, um, almost sort of virulent or like mm -hmm. that that even people who claim to be fighting against it like are using its language all the time right and they'll they'll, yeah, they'll feed into it yeah well no, it's a reasonable thing to assume that that people are on a team of some sort or that they that i identify in some way politically um and i certainly i certainly did identify as being on the left and i hated republicans um uh, and you know, and Ronald Reagan and uh, George W. Bush uh, in particular. Um, so I certainly was was uh, a partisan for a long time, and that led me to actually begin writing the Righteous Mind. Um, but when I stepped out and decided, you know, that I need to, as a social scientist, I need to um, just study this stuff. I need to. I, I should not be on a team. I should not contribute to campaigns. I should not consult for any campaigns. Um, it was really freeing, and. Um, you know, we know so much. So now I'm in a business school and I'm studying business ethics. And we know so much about conflicts of interest. And, you know, if, if, if doctors get a tiny kickback for prescribing a drug or if, if, um, investment, if investment advisors get a commission for, for uh, steering their clients to a certain fund with a higher, higher fee structure, um, those conflicts of interest are almost impossible to eradicate. We're, we're really influenced by such things. Yeah, and well, it's that's, like, yeah, that's I mean, true. yeah. Well, it's like that 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 message I I sent you a screenshot of today, like where somebody says, "Oh yeah, I, I've been seeing you've been posting a lot from the Happiness Hypothesis," and so and a bunch of people have said, "Yeah, I just ordered it on Amazon. I just bought the book," and then uh, and then somebody jokingly, I mean, he was just joking around, but like uh, actually, no, it was Alice, right? Who's actually an, a 
very well-known novelist, Alice Adams. But she uh, she posted, she's like, you know, John, you should get like a kickback for for what, uh, uh-huh. because you have a you know wide following and stuff like that. They're like, you, you should get a kickback for the, the books that you promote. And I said, you know, I was obviously taking her joke. Uh, you know, I, I understood she was joking. But I said, um, that's corruption. <laughs> like, yeah. And, you know, there is like part of the, part of what academia is supposed to be standing for is, and of course we never achieve it. Of course it's never pure. We never, but it's a really noble goal, right? That we should be a little bit above the fray and we should well, be, that's right. yeah. That's right. So cor- yeah, corruption is a, is a great word um, to use here uh, because when it's financial corruption, so if it's doctors who have a fiduciary duty to their patients, they must put their patients first. And if a doctor is prescribing a drug because he gets a larger kickback compared to another drug, well, that's corruption, and that doctor should perhaps be disbarred or, or uh, in some other way punished for that because that is corruption. It violates his or her fiduciary duty. And I would argue that in the academy, there's very little financial corruption. There's very little that warps us to, to say one thing or another based on money. But politics and ideology is incredibly corrupting. Yep. And you can point to the effects all over the place where people will frame an argument or they will not consider a counter argument um, because that would be politically, what's the word, offensive or or so many, so many faculty members think that part of their job um, is to fight fascism, racism, all these other things. And while those are good things to fight, but it's a corruption. It, it's a, it pulls you away from your telos or your purpose if you allow that to affect your scholarship. And we just accept. We just yeah. accept that it's fine, that of course we're all on the same team here. We're all fighting the right. We're all fighting uh, you know, the Republicans or Trump or conservatism or religion or whatever, whatever it is. And that, I think, is corruption. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was in grad school at, at Hopkins, there was – uh, Michael Bellil came out with his book Arming America, which immediately was just rocketed to the top. He was like an academic superstar. It was assigned to two different seminars in grad school. And they were just, this is amazing. This proves that America did not have a gun culture in the colonial period. And it was all just a a creation of the evil sort of uh, gun industry uh, in the late 19th century. And basically he came out and because he was saying stuff that we all wanted to hear, um, everybody just ate it up. They just ate it up and immediately he won numerous prizes. He was was a front page article in the New York Review of Books. It was like just being feted like crazy. Nobody, Nobody bothered to go and like check any of his data the way we normally would before you would award those prizes. It was just presented as gospel truth hot off the presses. And of course the NRA, right, they've got resources and a lot of them looked at this and were like, that seems like total fucking bullshit to me. That doesn't ring true to me at all. And so uh-huh. they they went and said, "Can they followed his footnotes. Something everybody else should have done. Oh, right? man. They just yeah. followed his footnotes and found that uh-huh. he had made it all up. And wow. he kept making excuses and excuses and excuses. And he, you know, and this was a big deal at my alma mater because like, 
he went to Johns Hopkins and he won the best dissertation prize at Johns Hopkins in the department. And his name was on the plaque in the seminar room, like Michael Bilio. Anyway, and like he just made it all up. And when he was finally up against the wall, he said, oh, the archive where I got all that information burned down. Oh, my God. Oh and anyway, my God. it was a big scandal. Yeah. He eventually... Well, yeah, I'm looking up on Wikipedia yeah, right now. It's they a, start he off? eventually, it's, yeah. like... But it was yeah. exactly what you're talking about. It was straight-up corruption, but it wasn't, mon- it wasn't money corruption. No, it that's was right. ideological corruption. That's he right. was telling us what we all wanted to hear, which that's is right. that this gun problem is an artifact of these evil bad people, because it's all a Manichaean, you know, mm. battle between good and evil, and there's the big bad NRA and the gun industry. And actually, the yeah. truth is that the gun issue in America is a complicated issue, and it goes all the way back to the founding of, you know, long before the, the you know, long before the revolution, it goes back to the colonies. It goes back to a, con- a continent that was, you know, that was sort of conquered by force. And uh-huh. that, you know, I mean, I'm a direct descendant of Maryland slaveholders. Like it was a, a violent place that was defended by violence. Also a really cool place in many ways. But the the, the point is the truth about the gun culture is that it has deep roots that are will be will, yeah. will require complicated solutions but it right. was so much more comforting he told no, that's us right. this is yeah he this told us amazing, a comforting story no, that's right this is an amazing example and i'm surprised that i've never heard of it but uh, i'm sure people on the right have all heard of it we all know about the sins of the other side uh and that allows us to continue to believe that the other side is so evil is so corrupt um and this is part of the problem of our polarization is that the media environment now makes it so easy uh, for partisans on any side to be completely armed, as it were, um, with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, of damning, damning exhibits about the other side's dishonesty. Um, so, yeah, thanks for this. This is an example I can use, you know, because, uh, you know, I co-founded this organization, Heterodox Academy, and our theme is that we actually need viewpoint diversity to do our work. We, we can't. We can't find truth if our claims will not be vigorously vetted. And if everybody's on the same team politically, then we know that claims that we want to believe will not be vigorously vetted. So this is a great example yeah. of, of a failure. So thank you for this. Do you have time for two more questions from our listeners? I actually, I actually don't. I have to write you a talk. Eh? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So do, give, me, um, give me one question. We'll do it quick. And then I, I got to run. I'm really sorry. Yeah, okay. So the, the question is, um, basically, this is somebody who has read your book in conjunction with Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind and wanted to know, do you think that taking mushrooms or hallucinogenics uh, can help somebody like, you know, sort of sad Richard Dawkins on Sam Harris's podcast the other day, uh, somebody who basically doesn't recognize elevation? They don't have the subjective experience. It's like talking to somebody who's you know born colorblind and trying to explain yep. color to them. Yep. Do you think that hallucinogenics could allow somebody to experience that that experience of awe and elevation in a way that would open that up for them, so that 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 yes, divinity that yep. divinity kind of 
would be open That's for a them. very yeah that is a very easy question my answer in a word is yes and in fact because of the michael pollan book and the discussions uh since then um just dis- uh, beginning a month ago i decided to be much more open uh, and to talk about my own psychedelic use and if um if readers if people read carefully uh, in chapter nine of the happiness hypothesis divinity with or without god and then also in the righteous mind the chapter on hive psychology you can kind of tell that i'm talking about psychedelic experience as this portal to a different dimension of experience um, i've been an atheist since i was about 14 years old uh, but my most intensive spiritual experiences or rather i should say this the intense psychological experiences that helped me to understand divinity and religion as a deep part of human nature those all came to me from LSD and psychedelic mushrooms, nice. and um, and those those experiences. I I um, I first uh, tried them in the, uh, June of of uh, 1993, a few months before I went to India for research, and I'd been reading a lot of Buddha of Hinduism, and then before then Buddhism, um, and so those experiences really helped me. Actually, at, like the ride on the elephant, you know, I'd read all these Eastern um, uh, Eastern writings on on um the universe and the soul and and um uh and and how you know life is an illusion and all this sort of stuff and you know in one night you have these experiences and suddenly you you experience it the the elephant experiences it and so those experiences were really transformational for me and i think that they were essential in my later um my later efforts to step out of my moral matrix as a progressive and to really try to understand different moral matrices. I don't know if I could have done that if I had not tried psychedelic drugs and really had the experience of stepping out of the universe as I knew it for a few hours and um, sort of traveling around different dimensions is, you know, it sounds trite and that's the way pe- the kind of language people often use. Oh no, I've, oh, the, tri- I've tripped a lot. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So actually flatland, that's right. I forgot. Right. Yeah. So in the, in the happiness hypothesis, I talk about Flatland. Everybody should go read this wonderful 19th century short novel called Flatland. It I read re- it. I read it because of you. <laughs> so, okay, excellent, yeah. excellent. But it really captures, uh, and that's it has a kind of a Christian flavor to it. But it is very much a kind of a, um, uh, you know, what would it be like to to be pulled out of a three dimensional world and enter a four dimensional world. So anyway, so there you go. That's my my uh, I, my answer to your question. Well, that's I a fantastic answer. response, and uh, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. And uh, next time we'll have to trip on, on <laughs> my, uh, we'll have to we'll have to like get high on mushrooms and just well, it's still and it's talk still about illegal, elevation. So, so yeah, it's still illegal. So I'm just going to say that you know, yeah, yes, right. well, I did it. I will never ever do it again. I will say so. Uh, no, whatever. I have whatever I have to do for legal protections. Yeah, right. <laughs> At any rate, okay, John. Great to talk right. with you. Good uh, luck with your writing the talk. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Take care.